All right, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? <laughs> okay, just checking. You don't have to be quiet when I'm, when I'm preaching. I mean, don't talk at the same time I'm preaching. Don't do that. But, you know, you can say amen and stuff. We don't mind that. Um, I want to jump right in. Uh, last week, I started a series um, called Building Together. We've been talking about what happens next as a local church. Um, probably you guys have been thinking as kind of things begin to settle down in our nation and in the world <clears throat> when it comes to COVID, um, beginning to rethink, okay, well, what's next? You know, do I go back to what I was doing? Do I pick up something new? What is it that I'm actually supposed to be doing now? So we're, we're talking about that individually, but we also wanted to talk about that as a church. And so I want to just kind of share a little bit of vision um, through this series, but also how we're going to build together, what that looks like. And uh, if you walk into our church on a, on a given Sunday morning, it's going to look a lot like most every church that you would walk into on a Sunday morning. But the behind-the-scenes stuff is somewhat different than maybe what you're used to. So we're going to talk about some of that and what that looks like, talk about some of the responsibilities that you have as, as the church, uh, remind you that you don't, um, you don't come to church, you don't attend church, you are the church. And if you know that, that means there are a lot of things that are going to be different about what you do and how you are as a disciple. So we're just going to, we're just going to kind of jump into that and talk about it. I want to kind of do a quick recap because I know some people were kind of missing last week and, and, uh, and I went a little bit fast and, you know, we, we want to make sure the foundations are there. So I just want to kind of set that up. Um, I talked about patterns um, last week. Um, talked about Matthew chapter 16 and how Jesus said he was going to build his church. Um, and the question I ask you guys, if, well, if Jesus is building his church, then what are we supposed to be doing? Like, obviously, we're going to co-labor with him. We're going to come alongside because he's going to build his church out of us, right? That's kind of what that looks like. So what does that look like? What's our part? So we asked some of that, talked about how Jesus told us one of the things that you and I are supposed to do as believers. This is every believer. This is not just uh, pastors or teachers or people who've been Bible college. This is every single believer, everyone who names the name of Christ are to go and make disciples. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what I'm supposed to do. No one is exempt. The good news is he's asked us to do that, but he's also empowered us to do that at the same time. Matthew 28 talks about going and making disciples. I won't read it again. Again, I'm just going to try to do a, a real quick recap. Um, Jesus' heart and his desire is to build together with us. You see the pattern. We're going to get into this in just a second about his model and his pattern. Last, or last week we talked about patterns. This week we're going to talk a little bit about a model and what that kind of looks like, some methodologies. But Jesus wanted to build together. So he comes and for three years he gathers 12 guys, um, some other disciples as well, but specifically 12 guys, and that's who he's going to begin to build with. And so we watch their story as we read the, the Gospels. We see their story, and sometimes their story is a little frightening, like our story is a little frightening. Um, but they get there, right? Eventually they get there, and so you see Jesus commissioning them. Uh, Matthew 28, you see him commissioning. They're on the, the shores of Galilee, and he commissions them to go into all the nations and make disciples. And 12 men go and turn the world upside down. So much so that in 300 years, within 300 years, those 12 men had gone into the nations of the earth at that time, the Roman Empire, 50, within 300 years, 50%, over 50% of the Roman Empire had become Christians with no buildings, no sound systems, no internet, no social media, <laughs> and they were being persecuted at the same time. So whatever Jesus was doing back then was working. Would you agree? 
So we want to come back to and say, hey, maybe there's some things that we're doing that have been traditional or, you know, we picked them up along the way or we just like, hey, I don't know any other way to do it. I'm just going to do it this way. But what if we got back to the way Jesus did it? So we talked about how building implies a builder. Uh, Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. We talked about how the Lord is building the house, but there are builders who if they don't build it the way he's building it, they build in vain. So there's two builders. There's the Lord building the house, and there we are co-laboring and building alongside. We talked about how discipleship is God's way of building, um, at least in the beginning, Psalm 103, that discipleship requires submission. Um, know that the Lord is God, is He who made us. One version said, it is He who made us, not we ourselves, just to reiterate. Uh, we are His, we are His people, we are the sheep of His pasture. We belong to Him. Um, we talked about building implying a pattern. In so many places, like Moses in the tabernacle, make the tabernacle, all its furnishings, exactly like the pattern. So there were patterns in the, new, in the Old Testament, patterns in the New Testament as well. Genesis chapter 6 was Noah and the ark, and he said build it exactly just like this. This is a pattern because it mattered. And we talked about how in 1 Corinthians, Paul was building, and he said, very, he said it was very important. This is 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 11. But the second part of this, he says, but each man must be careful how he builds on the foundation of Jesus being the foundation. Jesus is the foundation, and we build on top of that. You need to be careful how you build it. It matters, and so don't get that wrong. So there is a right way to build. There's wrong ways to build, and I've, I've done a lot of the wrong ways, so I can help out and if you want to talk about how to miss it. I've missed it royally in many, many ways, um, but I'm figuring out if, as I get back to Scripture that God had an idea about how he wanted to do it. So I just want to reiterate before we jump into the, this morning's message about the pattern that Jesus had, because he, he did something really, really interesting. We talked about the fact that he made disciples. This was Jesus's pattern that he was, he was giving to the disciples so that they could do what he did, right? And so he made disciples, and his expectation, as we said in Matthew 28, was they would go and make disciples who made disciples who made disciples all the way down the road until it gets to you and I. We are the product of Jesus making disciples over 2,000 years ago. Isn't that interesting? And it's, it's worked its way down into now we're supposed to be making disciples. So we asked what a disciple was. Um, there was a quote by Dallas Willard that said, a disciple is who Jesus would be if he were you. <laughs> right, he, he's, he's not you, and that's important. He's, he's, you're different than him. He made you differently. Everybody's different. We know this. Um, so you have to figure out what that means, the gifts and the callings and the personality and, and, and all those things, your strengths, all those things come into play. But Jesus' pattern was very interesting. His pattern was he would go up to the Father. He was regularly, constantly going out. He would go away to pray. He would go up on a high mountain. He would go and he would be alone with God and he would be in relationship with the Father first. So we talked about the up aspect of it. So as he's building his character or challenging us to, to, to come inside or come alongside his character and develop his character and his competencies, he would go up to the Father. So there's an expectation that you and I do the same thing. We go up, that our first relationship is with the Father. Secondly, he came down the mountain, this is Mark chapter 9, and he, and he meets with the disciples. That's the end. That's the brothers and sisters. That's the family of God, right? And from there, the Bible says in Mark chapter 9, he healed or actually delivered someone. So the kingdom of God um, is, is impacting the world and the sinfulness and the brokenness of the world. But it started with up, 
it went into end where they're not working alone. Nobody ever does this alone. We're called to do this in team. Uh, Matthew talks about it going out two by two, at least two by two, if you're going to go out and win people uh, to Jesus. And so that's the expectation. But he went up, he went in, so he never did it alone. And then from that foundation, from that place of safety, from that place of health and wholeness, that's when he began to go out. So three dimensions of Jesus' life. Up towards the Father with a sensitivity to the Spirit of God. In towards brothers and sisters and love and having things in common. Um, and then out to those who don't yet know God, impacting the world with the power of God. So what does it look like to co-labor? We'll jump into something a little bit different this morning. There are different models of church. If you've been around for a while, I've been doing this for 34 years, and I've, I've bumped into all kinds of models. I have not led in churches with all of them, but I've led in churches with a bunch of them. So different ways we've tried to come alongside Jesus and say, if Jesus is building his church, how do we co-labor? And so some of those models, most of those models, come from metaphors you see in Scripture. So the church is a field. The church is a flock. The church is a vine. The church is God's house. This one you, you see a lot in Scripture. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, Hebrews 3.6 says. First Timothy, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, God's house. Another is the temple. You yourselves are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house or a temple. Um, the church is the body. We've all heard this one. Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is in himself its savior. 1 Corinthians 12, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Right. So all these metaphors. The church is the bride of Christ. You hear us talk about that a lot. That helps us, as, as, especially as elders, as fivefold ministry gifts to the church. It helps, helps us to remember that we are, we are the bride of Christ. Like I, my role as an elder or pastor, whatever you want to call it, that I'm still the, I'm still the bride of Christ. But, but the Lord has called me, he's appointed me to serve the body of Christ, to serve the bride of Christ. It's helpful to remember that I'm not the husband when I'm doing that. <laughs> so often churches get in trouble because they think of the bride of Christ as their bride, and so they begin to draw affection to themselves rather than taking the affection that people want to give you and point it back to Jesus. And if we do that wrong, we get in a lot of trouble. So the church... Um, is the bride, for I feel a divine jealousy. This is 2 Corinthians 11. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband. This is Paul saying, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Revelations 21.9, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So it's really important understanding some of these, how we relate in, in terms of these metaphors. But here's the one I want to touch on today and I want to spend a little time on. The church as the family of God. Now, this one can get weird, right, because we, we can tend, if we're not careful, it can start to look a little weird from the outside when we call each other brother and sister, right? If you call a leader father, which some, some groups do that, if you start doing that, the world looks at it a little funny because that's reserved for your nuclear family, maybe your extended family, right? I mean, you, you don't normally call your brother brother when you have a brother. Maybe you do. It's kind of weird. <laughs> but you'll call your, your, your dad father and your mom mother. Usually, though, it's interesting that we don't do that very often because that's the formal word for it. We call them what? Mom and dad, right? Or in, in, from the Appalachian Mountains, they call, they call them mummy. <laughs> it comes out that way, but it's, it's kind of mommy. But anyway, it's interesting. But, it, but it's, a, it's a term of affection, of course. And so it's understandable to, for the world to look at that and go, that's a little bit weird. But let me just give you some scriptures that support it. This is Matthew 12, 
Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is Jesus saying, and we're going to get into this in just a little bit more deeply in a second, but Jesus calling us, his brother, his, sister, his brother, sisters, his mother. And then 2 Corinthians 6, 18, I will be a father to you. This is a prophetic word from the Old Covenant. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. He's quoting something from the Old Testament. Ephesians 2, 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's mixing metaphors, right? Saints and, and citizens and, and, you know, nation metaphor. And then members of the household of God, temple metaphor. And, I mean, you, you just begin to see it all mixed together. So what, what's God going after? The one that we see the most, though, is, is the, in terms of family. That's what Jesus was trying to build. Um, next week, I'm going to talk about, there's a really interesting thing that happens about Acts 20 or so. The word disciple is no longer used in the church. <laughs> so we're going to explore that a little bit about why that is and why that's important and why there was a transition from the word disciple to something different. And obviously it has it, it give you a little bit of a clue. It's going to be something along these lines. But it's interesting, Jesus, Jesus his own life kind of models this. So I just want to take you to a passage of Scripture. This is um, um, in chap- chapter 4 of Luke. Most of us know this story. Jesus comes, and he sits down, or comes into the temple. He, uh, he picks up, or sorry, the synagogue. He picks up the scroll, and he begins to read. And he reads from a particular passage, and it's a prophecy about the Messiah. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then the Bible says he, he put the scroll down, he sat down, he said, before he did, he said, Today, this scripture, this prophecy about the Messiah is fulfilled in your hearing. So think about that for a second. So let me just take a second and just talk a little bit about um, the synagogue. Okay, the synagogue was kind of like the local church. Um, in a small uh, town like Nazareth, some of these small little villages, if, if it had a synagogue, it was typically not very big, and almost everyone of, of the Jewish religion would come into this synagogue on, on the Sabbath and they would hear, someone would read from the scroll, there would be admonitions from the rabbi, typically different things that would happen. But they would sit as families and as guilds. Guild is an interesting word. So Jesus was, most people think he was a carpenter, and he was, but he's not the same kind of carpenter that you would think of today because they didn't always just build with wood. They built with stone. And so he was also a stone mason to some degree. More than likely he was pretty strong, he was pretty tough, um, if he's lifting stones and timbers on, on, a, on a daily basis, he was a pretty tough guy. But he, was, he did that because his father did that. And then people would gather into this guild from the extended family. There would be brothers and cousins and all these different ones would work in this, whatever this guild would be. They didn't call it that, but I'm calling it that. And so what would happen is, is strangers would come in and they would be converted to Judaism. They would often become part of that extended family and they would work in that particular area. So they were connected in all these different ways. And so Jesus comes in, more than likely, Jesus sat, when he first came in, he, he probably sat with his mother, with his brothers, with his extended family, and with the people that he'd worked with in Nazareth most of his life. Okay? So I want to set the stage. Now look at Luke 4.28, because this is what begins to happen. It says, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. <laughs> 
and as you, you can well imagine, Paul made this statement later on. He said, I decided to know, to know no one ever again after the flesh, but only after the Spirit. That's not a super spiritual phrase. What he was saying was, I saw Jesus as a rabbi who had been a carpenter or a stonemason carpenter. That's who I saw him to be. I knew he had brothers and sisters. I knew his normal life, and I saw him that way, only it turns out that was not who he was, right? And so Jesus is declaring now who he is. He's, he's, gone, he's already gone about doing miracles and signs and wonders, so there's some indication that there's something different about Jesus, right? So he comes and he declares this, and then this is what it says. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this, verse 29. They got up. Now imagine, this is family, people he's been with his entire life. These aren't just people he saw at Walmart, okay? That's like you and I grew up in a small town. We see everybody at Walmart, right? If you want to know what's happening, just go to Walmart. You'll find people that you grew up with. This, they saw them every day. The town wasn't that big. And in the synagogue, they were there together. So this is beginning to happen. It says, they got up, they drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. What they were doing was they were fulfilling one of the commandments that said blasphemy or, or you know, to say that I am God, idolatry in that sense. The, the punishment was to take them up to a hill that was higher than a man and throw them off, hopefully on their head, and if it didn't kill them when they landed, you would stone them to death after. That, that's what they're doing, okay? So, in order to throw him off the cliff, but, right, he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, I don't know if he, like, just gave them the eye, you know, and I can almost hear, like, the, you know, the good, bad, and the ugly tune, because <laughs> he just looked, and they're like, Oh, snap, <laughs> my bad, Jesus, you know, like, because, again, he's not probably a little scrawny guy. He's probably tough anyway, but there's something, I imagine, there's something in his eyes like, okay, there's, there's more to this cat than, <laughs> than I, I, I thought originally. Maybe we'll just let him alone, right? So he walks away, and then it says, listen to this, this next passage, because things can happen quick in the Bible. You got to be ready for it, okay? This happens here, and then it says, then he went down to Capernaum. Seems nondescript, seems innocent, you know, no reason for that to have any importance, but it's about to. Capernaum was a town in Galilee. On the Sabbath, he taught the people. So he went to another synagogue, and he taught the people. They were amazed at his teachings because his words had authority. Did his words not have authority in Nazareth? Because now I just want to, just real quick, I want to, just before we get into the next part of this where we go to Capernaum, I want you to understand something. In that group, his family was either in on it, right, because they were there, or they were complicit in it and allowing it to happen. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't make a big deal about the fact that his whole family was there, but they were. Everybody he'd worked with his whole life were there. And he makes a statement. They don't believe it. So much so that it infuriates them. They, they say to him, you know what, we're gonna, that's blasphemy, we're going we're gonna to punish you. They take him to the, to the hill and they're going to throw him off and kill him. And he walks away from it. And the next thing he does, right after that, he's rejected by his hometown. He's rejected by his, maybe his mother was there, I don't know. But his family, extended family, they were there. He was rejected by his family. And he walks away and the very next thing he, goes, he, he does, he goes to Capernaum. So I just want to show you Capernaum real quick. This is just a picture of Capernaum. I don't know if you can see that. Um, 
Karen and I had the privilege of being able to go there and visit, spend, spend some time there. It was really a lot of fun. So I just want to kind of give you a picture of this. Um, right here in the front, um, that ruin, if you will, that's the, that's the uh, synagogue. And Jesus went into this synagogue, and he taught. This is right after he left Nazareth. He comes down here to Capernaum. It's not that big of a town. Th- these are the ruins here. It wasn't much bigger than this if it was bigger. So he begins to teach in the synagogue. They're amazed at his teaching. It comes with authority. He casts a demon out in this particular scenario, and then the very next thing he does is he goes down to Peter's house, which is that kind of octagon shape up there. That's Peter's house. Um, Still to this day, you can go to the next slide. That's Peter's house. So there's this octagon thing built over the top of it, but underneath it are the ruins right now of of a church that was built on the ruins of Peter's house. But almost with 100% certainty, that was Capernaum, that was the synagogue that Jesus taught in, and that was the house. It's less than a block away. He goes down. The Bible says he goes into Peter's house. So he meets Peter and his family and his extended family. As a matter of fact, he heals his mother-in-law. Peter's mother-in-law is sick, and he heals her, right? And so he ministers to them. So Peter, if you remember, Peter and his brother and Peter and his extended family were fishermen, which was another guild, right? So when they met in that synagogue, typically Peter and his whole extended family would sit together they would, or the men would anyway, they would sit together and they would be um, a family and, and a group of people who work together. Jesus is rejected by his biological family and the first thing he does is he goes and he builds a new family. So I want to show you this. This is really interesting. This is Mark chapter 3. So it's something very similar is going on here. It says, then Jesus entered a house and again, a crowd gathered. Remember that I've shown you guys before a picture of the house that typically had a, a central area where they would, they would gather um, animals and different things to keep them in at night. It usually had a wall around it. It usually had a roof on top where people would gather because it was cooler. But it was also a place where they could defend because they didn't have police back then, policemen or anything like that. So they had to defend from marauders with, them, with their family and their extended family and people who were part of their guild. Okay, So their extended family. So it says, then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family, now this is his biological family, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. In the original language, that translates, they, want, they went to arrest him. Okay, They're not policemen, but the extended family has a little power. Some of you guys might have noticed this in the South. Does your extended family have a little, <laughs> they have some influence, right? Um, so they go in, and it says they're going to take charge of him or arrest him, for they said he's out of his mind. So, so here's what's happening. They see his ministry. They don't think it's valid. They don't think it's real. They don't believe in him. Later on, they do, right? Maybe Mary does because she held those things in her heart. But James, his brother, his biological brother who becomes his disciple at some point, did not believe he was the Messiah, okay? So this is his biological family. They said he's crazy. Anybody ever said that about you? Me too. So this is a little further down. This is Mark chapter 31. It says, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. So this, this is Mary, right, who I preached about at Christmas time <laughs> and Mother's Day. Right? She's an amazing woman most of the time, right? Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. They were coming to get him to take him home because he's crazy. It says, a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. So I just want want you to see the picture. Jesus is doing ministry in this house. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's preaching. 
this gospel that is, is life as a Messiah, he's talking about what's to come. So many people have gathered into the house that they, at one point they can't even eat. There was too many people where they, they could actually prepare a meal. So now his, his, brother and his mother and his brothers come outside, and they can't get in because there's too many people. So they send word in, you know, person by person to tell him, and this is what happens. It says, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you, and this is what Jesus said. Who are my mother and brothers? So I want to pause there for a second. He's asking a rhetorical question he's about to answer, okay? Who are my brothers, my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. And then he amplifies, and he says, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Just take a second. What was God's intention for the church? Was it a corporate hierarchical setup? Are we supposed to build the model out of corporate model? Where you have a hierarchy, typically in most churches you have a senior pastor. That's me. I'm the most important person in the room right now. I, I mean, I went to Bible school, so I definitely have more value than you do, right? I am, I am clergy. You are laity, which means less. In the, no, it doesn't. But <laughs> and again, I know people who are in these models, and they're wonderful, amazing, incredible, beautiful Christians. But that is not the model that Jesus had in mind. So whatever churches look like in your past, Whatever you experience, where there is a hierarchy, that's Jesus is saying, you want to look at my mother? She's here among you. There were mothers, and you think of this in this local church, where we're standing right now, some of you are mothers to me and to my wife. We talk, Karen was talking about honoring Lawrence and Pat. Mothers and fathers in the faith, multiple churches. <laughs> they have served and given their life away and seen son, not just their own personal biological sons and daughters, but sons and daughters in the faith all over the place. Some of you guys have poured your life in fathers and mothers into people's lives. And you have disciples, whether you understand it or not, you do. And you should keep doing that. It goes on. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my mother. So here's what happens. Jesus is rejected by his biological family in Nazareth. He, he instantly, from there, because he'd been ministering with these guys already, so it's not the first time he'd met Peter and these guys. But from that moment, from that moment, everything changed for Jesus. He went down to Capernaum. He preached in that synagogue. He was accepted in that synagogue. Peter and his family, extended family, were there, and he went into Peter's family. He ministered to their immediate family, and then he became part of Peter's family. And from then on out, you see it. You see, him, you see Peter becoming one of the closest people in Jesus' life. Talk about a brother. He was as close to a brother as Jesus had in that time outside of, you know, his biological brothers who had rejected him. So what does that, look, what does that mean? He, he leaves this biological family who rejected him and immediately starts a new family with his disciples. Now, he called them disciple because that was the model of the day. Rabbis had disciples. But it began to change. No longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. And then eventually we see even more than that. They were with him for three years. I mean really with him. You ever go camping with somebody? <laughs> you get to know them really, really quick because you wake up in the morning and go, oh, that's how their hair looks in the morning. I was wondering, right? 
<laughs> right? It's like, what's that? What's that odor? What's that smell? Oh yeah, that's that's my brother or my sister, right? That's that's my oh, that's not good. Right? You just learn the frustrations, the irritations, all of those things on the road. That's what they experienced with Jesus. He would go and he would preach and he would do ministry. Now watch, because this is important. This was his model, his method, if you will. He would go and he would do ministry in front of them. They would watch him do the ministry, right? See, what Jesus is doing is super intentional. He's doing, he's doing the ministry in front of them. They're coming back to the campfire. They're having conversations. Numerous times in the Gospels, you see them say, Jesus, how come this? When, when you cast a demon out of them immediately, we couldn't do it. What was wrong with us? Oh, you of little faith. He was teaching them. He was discipling them. He was speaking into their lives. He would do it in front of them, for them. He would talk about it, and then he would do it with them. Remember we said, um, you give them something to eat. I'm not, I've done it. I've shown you what it looks like. You've seen me do miracles. Now you do miracles. Isn't that frightening if you're a disciple? What would you think if, if Karen came to you and said, hey, I want you to pray for this sick person? She just did that with Lawrence, and Lawrence took it like a champ and prayed for sick people, right? Right here in our congregation. That's because he's a mature believer. That's what he's going to do. And so Jesus has said, hey, I, I did it for you. I've shown it to you. I've t- we've talked about it. Now it's your turn. I'm gonna, I want you to do it. So he did it with them, and then he, he had them do it. And then at some point, the Bible says he had to go away so the Holy Spirit could come. Why? So they could be empowered by God to go and do what he had discipled them and taught them how to do. To go and make new members of the family. Right? To seek and save the lost. Remember Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son? What's the picture of the story? A father and two sons, right? Bring him home. I want them to be home. I want them to understand what it means to have a real relationship with the father. This is Jesus' methodology. So I want to wrap it up, kind of introduce what I'm going to talk about a little bit more deeply next week. What does it look like to have church as a family? So I'm going to give you four ways that we can do family in terms of the mission that we're called to and how we can screw it up without even know we're screwing it up. You know how I know that's true? I've done it. So I'm going to give you a couple of them. First one is family or mission. This usually involves celibacy. <laughs> right? Remember, uh, there's the story of the, the, uh, of the guy, the monk who kept singing that song, celibate, celibate. It's like, that's not the, <laughs> Right? <laughs> Not, that's not what we're after, but <laughs> it's like all this time I thought it said celebrate. Nope, that's not what it said. But people do that. Why? Because they think to have an effective mission, whole groups of people that call themselves the church do this. Priests who are not allowed to marry. The Bible, nowhere does the Bible say to do that. And yet they celebrate it or celebrate it, right, as the model that everybody should participate in. And it's completely unbiblical, right? But Protestants are just as bad. <laughs> so family or mission, again, can involve celibacy. What it typically does is it forces you to choose mission. And what happens is you end up with an angry or a sad spouse if you're in ministry or if you're on mission and you try to do it this way. It's family or mission. You tend to make the mission your mistress, right? And that's challenging. So we have to be super careful about that. It becomes a competition between family and mission. Often your kids are chaotic. You know why? Because you have neglected your kids for the sake of other people's kids. And it turns out you don't have to do that. This is not the model that Jesus taught us. The second one is family as mission. Sorry, uh, family and mission. 
This is the one Karen and I were taught. This is what we were taught to do, that they're parallel tracks. You have family and you have mission, and you do them both. And if you, you have to really have good, healthy boundaries, and you have to talk about margin all the time, and you have to manage the, the transition between the two. You have to think about your days off. You know, you have to be able to go home and take a nap on Sunday because you're wiped out, right? You have to be careful that people, when they call you for their needs all the time, that you're not, you know, damaging your own family to go and meet the needs of the other people's family. So if you're out two nights a week, we just had a season where we were out three nights a week and it almost killed us and we knew better and it was some, some things we couldn't control, but it was a long two months and a season that was really, really not healthy for us because they're doing the family and mission. It was just not working right? So there, we have to manage the boundaries, and because we're having to manage boundaries, it's absolutely exhausting, which means it is not sustainable. You can't sustain it. So this is not the way. Here's the other one that's wrong, is family as mission. In other words, you spend all of your time with your own kids and your own small family. Even if it's your extended family, you have no room for the lost and broken outside of your nuclear and extended family. And the danger of that is you focus so much on them that sometimes you over-focus on them and do them, even do them damage. There are seasons and times when you do need to focus on your nuclear family and your extended family, and you ought to do that, but you can't do it exclusively. So what are we looking for? The big one is this. Jesus was showing us how to do this. When he took his disciples on mission, it was a family on mission. So what's the difference? What does it look like? It's nuanced, but it's really important. So let me just kind of pause here for a second as I kind of wrap today's message up. This is where I want you to go. So what I'm telling you is Karen and I are working on doing this well. We want to do this better. We want to model this better. In front of you guys, we're asking our elders, our deacons, our leaders to do this same model as well. And we're asking you to do it because we believe that it's a biblical model. So what does that look like? You stop thinking of discipleship as a task we do and start living out discipleship as a way that we are. See, it's formed within us in our identity rather than something we do. Ministry becomes a thing. Church becomes a place you go and you stop actually being a Christian and you go to meetings Christians go to and you call that mission. It's not. It's just one meeting among many, potentially. So what does family on mission look like? It means we stop doing discipleship as a class, as a program, or as a curriculum, and we start living it as a way of life. So here's what that looks like. You begin to invite more people into your life, more people into more of your life. <laughs> now some of you guys are going, dear God, man, we were doing family mission and almost died. <laughs> now you're asking me to invite more people in? More of my life? What are you talking about? And here's the difference. It's subtle. But here, this is what Jesus did. Jesus invited them along the way. See, the, for a long, long time, Christianity was literally called the way. Think about the terms Jesus used. He said, <clears throat> he said come and follow me. He didn't say, come and meet with me. Right? Come and have a meeting. He, he didn't say that. Go, he didn't say, come to a place. He said, come and follow me. And, and he would say things like, you know, uh, he would talk about what that meant. He said, you need to hate your father and your mother if you're going to love me. Now, he didn't mean literally. What he was saying is comparison to the time, that, to the life that you give me, submitted to me as a believer, it's going to look like you hate your mother and your father because you're going to choose things like Jesus did. You're going to choose things where your family is going to say, I think you're crazy a little bit. Why are you giving away so much of your money? Why are you giving away your time? Why are you serving the down and out? Why, 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 why? why? 
you have to be clear on this. You still need healthy boundaries. You still need margin in your life. But here's the difference. Rather than creating, like say, hey, let's go grab a coffee, I'm, I'm bad about that, right? Because I, I can set up a time, I can go, and I meet with one person. Wouldn't it be better if I said, hey, listen, I've got this thing I'm going to go do where I'm going to go pray for somebody. Would you come along with me? Because now we've got the ride out there, right? We've got the interaction with the people. If you've never done this before, you're going to watch me pray for somebody. Watch me interact with them. You're going to watch me pray for the sick. You're going to see God do some crazy things. Sometimes you're going to, you're going to be wild and you're going to come back. And on the, on, the, on the conversation back or on the drive back, we're going to talk about what happened, right? That's, that's the way. And so the intention is you invite more people into more of your life. But here's what you do. You have to go through, and this is what we're going to get into next week, and you start to have to think about the patterns in your life are they the patterns that you can take people along with? And if not, you want to really begin to look at the patterns and the things that you're doing in your life so that you can move into the model that Jesus had where it was all integrated. Right? Uh, we were, I was having a discussion with someone this morning about, about my title. Um, my title is pastor, lead elder, you know, senior pastor, whatever you want to call it. That's my function, actually. It's not me. My name's Dave. Hi. <laughs> right? And I function in certain arenas like eldership and all. I function there. But my name's Dave. I have a home. Most of you have been in my home. They told me in Bible college, like one of these models, mostly family and ministry, do not let people into your life because you can't effectively minister to them, which is exactly the opposite of what Jesus said. How many of you guys have seen Karen and I argue? Raise your hand. <laughs> A few of you guys, right? <laughs> Thanks, honey. I appreciate that. <laughs> we, we do that on purpose. Now, listen, we have a big knockdown drag out. We save that for private. That way when we break stuff, it's easier to clean it up. That can, I'm just kidding. It doesn't get that bad. It gets pretty bad sometimes. It's intense. But we're not afraid of having a disagreement in front of you. Because part of what we're doing when we do that is we're showing you how married people work stuff out. Right? Isn't that what you do with your kids? Dear Lord, I hope you don't hold back all the time and never let your kids see who you are. How are they going to know how to be a mother if they're a, if they're a young woman? How to be a father if they're a young man? How are they going to know who to marry? What kind of person should I be marrying if they never see into the life of someone who is godly, who is whole, who has integrity, who has honor, who is on mission? How are they going to know unless they see it, unless they walk with you? So I want to challenge you, one of two things, walk with somebody as a disciple and then make a decision to go and make disciples the way Jesus taught us how to do it. So let me end with this, there's probably going to be a lot of transition for many of us as we go through this, and it's going to be irritating for you. <laughs> it's going to irritate you. I'm going to make sure of it. <laughs> you know Why? Because some of what we're doing needs to change, including me. Amen? But if we change and we transition into doing Jesus' thing, Jesus' way, guess what we're going to get? We're going to get his results. And his result is seek and save the lost. Bring them into your life. Let them see you. So let me end with this story. There was a guy who, who made a disciple at a gas station because he had golf clubs in the back of his truck. The guy saw his golf club, said, hey, man, I love to play golf. Um, 
do you play? He said, yeah, we actually have a threesome. We could use one more guy if you're up for it. We travel most weekends, every other weekend at least. We travel within an hour or two. We play around to golf and we come home, have lunch together and come home. Would you like to, are you up for that? And he said, man, I'd love that. So they start doing that. He starts connecting with the guy. They have dinner with him. They begin to build a friendship. This guy's on mission, though. He's on mission, right? So at some point, the guys, they're on their way to a golf course uh, to play a round of golf, and it's about an hour to get there. Two guys in the back, two guys in the front, and he's sitting in the front, and he says to the guy, he said, listen, I've noticed your marriage, and I see your marriage compared to my marriage, and your marriage is awesome, and my marriage sucks. Can you help me with my marriage? And this is what the guy said. He goes, I can but I'm going to have to invoke the name of Jesus. Are you okay with that? He goes, what? (laughs) He said, the reason I have a good marriage is because of Jesus. Now, if you want to hear about that with the name of Jesus all wrapped up into this, I'll tell you the story. If not, we can just play golf. The guy said, no, I'm interested. And so he tells him the story about when he became a believer, he stopped being selfish. And it turns out if you want a good marriage, you have to stop being selfish right? But you can't do it outside the power of God. So he tells him the story, leads to the gospel, he shares the gospel with him that day. Within three weeks, the guy became a believer. Guess what happened to his marriage? It got better. So the guy took him on a journey. His clue in, his walking along the way was a question about marriage. That was the thing that connected this man to Jesus through this guy because he was on mission. He's playing golf for Jesus and won somebody to the Lord. If you can play golf and win people to Jesus, I promise there are lots of other things that we can do and we can win people to the Lord. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to pray for you. Jesus, we just come to you and say thank you. Lord, first of all, thank you that nothing you did was arbitrary. Lord, um, everything you did had purpose and had meaning. You did it on purpose. Um, just like in the Old Testament with the Ark of the Covenant and the temple and, and Noah's Ark, Lord, you, you said make it exactly according to the pattern because the pattern will matter. And so, Lord, we just want to lean in. We want to build community. We want to build discipleship. We want to follow you. We want to follow in your ways. We want to learn your character. We want to receive and become like you in character, but also in competencies, Lord, in praying for the sick and healing. Just like you read in in Luke chapter 4, this is what you came to do, Lord, that you came to do it so you could teach us how to do it so we could go do it too in your name. And so, Lord, we want to see that. We want to see more of that. We want to see the world impacted. Lord, we don't want to just be religious. Dear God, we've had enough of that. We want to see impact. And the only way we're going to see it, Lord, is if we follow hard after you and do your thing your way. Teach us how to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us, um, both in-house and online. If you'd like prayer this morning, our prayer ministry team will be up front. If you're watching online, you can contact us at dothancf.com and through our website, and someone from our ministry team will be in touch with you. Thanks so much, you guys. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. Have a great week, and we look forward to seeing you next Sunday.